Very good morning to you. It's great to see you all this morning, especially on a half term and a Jubilee week. Double brownie points for you all. Well done. It's great that you're all here. My name's Neil. I'm married to the amazing Kate, and together we attempt to lead this wonderful church. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you've been around over the past, is it four or five weeks, I guess, you'll know that as part of our ongoing conversation around justice, Kate has put together a really great series of talks on women and justice, which have all been, they've all been amazing. We're just so fortunate and privileged here to have so many fantastic people who can just step up and, and, and speak. And so they've all been amazing. If you haven't heard those, I would encourage you to get to the website and listen to them. And as we draw this series to an end, uh, Kate has asked me uh, to attempt, underlined, highlighted, to share some thoughts and reflections on the subject of women and justice from a male perspective. And firstly, I need to say that I feel way, 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 way outside of my comfort zone. Um, secondly, I would want to ask for your grace and your generosity as I speak on a subject that arguably I don't and can't begin to have a right to speak on. But I think our hope in doing this is that we're attempting to bring a range of perspectives, hopefully all of which are helpful to us all as we work together as a community of believers to ensure that every woman here can and does take her rightful place here in this church as one made in the image of God and deeply loved by God and by us all. So, uh, where to begin? Perhaps a couple of stories, something um, more personal, and then something from the Bible seemed to me like a good place to start. So, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Kate and I were at a worship gathering. Um, it was with all of the amazing worship uh, teams from the church, um, and alongside, you know, doing what we do, you know, worshiping together and eating together and ministering to one another and just, just having a great evening, I think, I spent some time asking everybody to reflect on the life of King David. Now, if you don't know very much about uh, David from the Old Testament, amongst other things, he was known for having and, and for his heart for worship. And, and so it kind of made sense that we would talk about him, at least, you know, it, it, it did for me. And so the idea was that we got into small groups and we'd reflect on David's life to see if there are any kind of parallels or examples or, or lessons that as worship leaders here in the church today that we could potentially learn from him, glean from him. And, you know, and if I'm being honest, it all seemed to go, I thought it seemed to go pretty well. I think it did go pretty well. And people came up with all sorts of ideas, things like you know, wear your own armor, not somebody else's. You remember that whole thing about Saul's armor with David? And, you know, David honed his skills in secret. You know, he, he worshipped and he practiced in, in the fields on his own while he was tending the sheep. Um, we were encouraged, I think, by the fact that he wrote his psalms and he wrote from a place of repentance. 
he wrestled with God. You know, he didn't hold back his emotions. You can see that when you look through the Psalms. And so there are all these things, and, you know, you get the idea of some of the things that came out. And our, our hope and our prayer, I think, for the evening was that it would have been helpful for our worship teams, you know, as we and as they together press into all that God has for us as they lead us and you as a church into the presence of God. But the next day I got an email. And, you know, just put this in context, we get lots of emails, which we love, so please don't stop sending them. But this one was, was very gracious. It was, it was very kind, it was very considered, but it, it felt to me like it was a challenge. And it was a genuine question around the theme that I had chosen from the night before. And this email, which as I say, was, was very gracious, but from what I can understand, it was asking that although in theory, David is considered absolutely one of the giants of the faith, because of his treatment of women, amongst other things, should we in fact hold him up as some kind of example that we should all want to learn from? And because, you know, this person understood that the evening was intended to strengthen and encourage the team, they didn't, rightly so, I think, didn't feel it was appropriate to bring it up at that point. But the question is essentially, and was essentially around, how do we reconcile David's actions towards women with his revered and almost deified status in the church? And it's a very good question. It's a really hard question, but it's a really, really good question. Uh, again, if you know anything about the life of David, on the one hand, this, he's this amazing man after God's own heart. He's anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king. But at the same time, he commits some of the most serious and devastating sins uh, recorded in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 11, we read about the story of David and Bathsheba who David sees uh, bathing while uh, he's out on the roof of the palace uh, taking a walk. Now, at that point, you'll be familiar with the story probably, but at that point, Bathsheba is married to Uriah the Hittite, and Uriah is away at war fighting for David and for Israel. But in spite of that, David summons Bathsheba and sleeps with her. And Bathsheba becomes pregnant, and then when she sends word to David to tell him, what David does is he tries to cover up his actions by bringing Uriah back from the war in the hope that while he's on leave, he'll sleep with Bathsheba and assume, therefore, that the baby that she's pregnant with is his. The trouble, the trouble is that Uriah is a man who seemingly has more integrity than David, and because he can't countenance the idea of sleeping with his wife while his men are in the heat of battle, uh, Uriah sleeps outside of his tent and not with his wife. When David hears about this, uh, in his infinite wisdom, he arranges for Uriah to be killed um, on the front line of battle. A couple of chapters later in 2 Samuel 13, we read the utterly devastating story of Tamar. Now, for those of you not familiar with the story, um, Tamar is David's daughter. She's sister to one of David's sons, 
Absalom and she's half-sister to another of David's sons, Anon. But um, Amon, Amon falls in love uh, with his half-sister, Tamar. And when I say he falls in love with her, what I mean is he becomes utterly obsessed with her, but not in a good way. But under the advice of one of David's shrewdest advisors, Ammon hatches a plan to feign sickness so that he can ask for his sister Tamar to come to him and bake for him some of her special bread. And so Ammon lies in bed pretending to be sick and asks his father, King uh, David, to get Tamar to come and tend to him, uh, which he does and which she does. And when Tamar goes to Ammon's room to look after him in one of the most utterly devastating and terribly, terribly overlooked passages of Scripture, um, Ammon rapes her. It says in verse 14, but he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. And as if this desperately sad story couldn't get any worse, uh, it does, because after Ammon rapes Tamar, the Bible says that then he hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had ever loved her. And then um, when her brother Absalom asks Tamar, he, I think, has got wind and something's gone on, and he, he asks her whether Ammon has slept with her. All he says to her is, and this is what the Bible says, um, be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar's story ends with what is quite possibly uh, one of the most heartbreaking sentences in Scripture, and it says this, and Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Okay, so um, why are we focusing on... Um, David's transgressions, um, you know, first with Bathsheba and then with the rape of his own daughter Tamar, which, by the way, David does not deal with the way that he should. And what happens is two years later, Absalom kills Ammon uh, because of what he did to Tamar, and so there's even more death and destruction. Uh, but why are we focusing our attention on David's transgressions? Well, because after our worship leaders' gathering and all the talk of, my, of David's sort of mighty deeds and of all the things that we can um, and we might learn from him as this great example of goodness and godliness, I was being asked, again, in a most generous and most gracious way, how do I personally reconcile David's biblical and Christian reputation with his treatment of women? Uh, here through the example of just two women, Bathsheba and Tamar. And having spent some time thinking about it, I'm ashamed to say I, I don't think I know how to reconcile it. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, this is, this is after David has slept with Bathsheba and arranged, for, arranged to have her husband Uriah killed. Nathan the prophet comes uh, to David. Uh, so if you've got a Bible or have a look on the screen, this is what it says. Uh, this is um, 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Uh, when he came to him, he said this. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, 
But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. I spent a lot of time uh, praying and thinking and reflecting over the past couple of weeks since this uh, worship leaders gathering uh, and since receiving uh, the email. And in all honesty, I feel like this needed to be the platform from which I responded. I have responded to the person individually. I'm in the process of responding. But I felt like this needed to be the platform from which I responded. I felt like it needed to be a public response. Now, while I haven't committed adultery, you'll be glad to know, uh, I I haven't had some poor uh, woman's husband killed to cover up my abuse. Uh, I haven't sexually assaulted or raped anyone or connived to create a scenario where that might happen or tried to cover up something so heinous. If I'm being really honest and speaking just personally, there's something about Nathan's challenge to David that feels like it sits squarely on my shoulders. You are the man. And what I mean by that is that whilst I may not have committed acts even remotely or vaguely similar to David's, I am guilty of being complicit in the way in which women are treated. What I realized after this kind and gracious and generous email was that I hadn't even thought for one second about how the women in the room might feel about the actions of David. It just did not enter my brain. I knew about what he'd done. I knew it was bad, but I'm ashamed to say my response was perhaps more like Absalom's to Tamar in 2 Samuel 13. Be quiet now my sister, don't take this to heart. And so, uh, before I go any further, before the women In this church, I would like to publicly repent. I'd like to ask for your forgiveness for the pain and hurt that I may have caused by not giving thought to how um, not only these stories of male oppression from the Bible, but also from your own experiences of male oppression in your lives um, may have impacted you and shaped you 
and wounded you and damaged you. For not giving thought to how you might feel, I ask for your forgiveness um, and I promise to try and do better. And so this kind of leads me on to what I wanted to try and do with um, the rest of my time this morning. And as this subject is so significant, you'll be really glad to hear that rather than trying to squeeze it all into one talk, I'll probably attempt to do a part two in a couple of weeks after we've had some uh, respite from the Jubilee. Uh, But with the words of Nathan the prophet ringing in my ears, um, you are the man, I, I wanted to take some time to explore from a male perspective the matter of male privilege. And the reason for this is because alongside my sinfulness, which is absolutely a factor, uh, I think it was male privilege that kept me from seeing the potential impact of David's transgressions on some, you know, if not all of the women um, at our gathering. And uh, before I get into this, a word, if I may, to the men. Um, None of this, uh, and while we're at it, none of these talks that have been done um, by women on women are intended to bring guilt or shame on anyone. Um, There has been no intent to burden the men in this church with some kind of false guilt or some kind of shame about who or what you are. However, however, sometimes a bit of guilt or shame never did anyone any harm. And sometimes the reason we feel guilty or ashamed is because we've either done something we shouldn't have or we haven't done something we should have. And the reason I say that is that before we take offense as men, and and, and dismiss our guilt and shame as having been put upon us, Uh, let's just make sure that it's not the Holy Spirit convicting us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, and inviting us into the repentance and transformation that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Male privilege is a complex, vast, endemic matter. There are many, 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 many unearned benefits that men get that women do not get. And I want to share some of them uh, just for us to consider. And it's not about shame, but it is about understanding. Uh, And so if you're a male, and and, and here are some, and and this is by no means all, this is not an exhaustive list, of some of the potential benefits that result from being born male, that because of our male privilege, if you're anything like me, you are completely and utterly oblivious to. And if... Maybe, if you're like me, you've never really thought about these things. Here's an invitation to consider and reflect on those things in the presence of God and in the light of the Holy Spirit. Because men tend to be unaware of their own privilege as men. One writer put it like this. The first big privilege which white, male, people in the upper economic class, the able-bodied, the straight, 
can work to alleviate is the privilege to be oblivious to privilege. So all I ask as we uh, explore the topic of women and justice from a male perspective is that as men, we would try and be more cognizant of where any or, or all of these privileges might occur in our daily lives so that we can appreciate the work that needs to be done in our own lives so that our families and our churches and our communities and our workplaces and our society can be equitable places and spaces for all. And so here are some for our consideration, um, some of which you might agree with, uh, some of which uh, you won't, and that's absolutely fine. I would note, take a moment to notice your reaction. Take a moment to notice if um, you see a statement or read a statement and you go, well, that's just not true. Well, that's not, I'm, not, I'm not like that. If you notice that defensiveness rising up in you, just note it and observe it and put it kind of there and maybe revisit it and, and inquire of yourself, what was, why, why did I react that way? That, that kind of, you know, because as I read some of these, I was like, well, I'm not like that. That's not true. I'm not like men, other men like you. I'm not like that. It's like, mm, actually, maybe, maybe that's not true. Just notice that um, defensiveness, perhaps, that rises up. But they're not all um, necessarily absolutely all true for all men for all times. But they're just some thoughts, and they're just the beginning. I mean, there's a much longer list than this. But uh, they're here for us to consider so that by the grace of God and in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can respond accordingly. So I'm just going to read these. They're going to come up on the screen. But um, as a man, you can pretty much, you know, Carol touched on this a couple of weeks ago, I think. As a man, you can pretty much expect to be paid equitably for the work you do and not be paid less because of your gender. Now, as a man, a decision to hire you probably won't be based on whether the employer assumes you'll be having children in the near future. As a man, if you're never promoted, it's unlikely to be because of your gender. As a man, if you choose to have children, you're less likely to be expected to be their full-time caregiver. As a man, you're more likely to be able to balance a career and a family without being called selfish for not staying at home or being constantly pressurized or pressured to stay at home. As a man, if you and your partner decide to have children and it turns out that one of you needs to make career sacrifices to raise the children, chances are you'll both assume the career sacrificed should be hers. As a man, you can decide not to have children and probably not have your masculinity questioned. As a man, if you have children with your partner, chances are she'll do most of the child rearing, in particular the most dirty, repetitive, and unrewarding parts of child rearing. As a man, you can generally walk alone at night without fear of being raped or sexually assaulted. As a man, you can go on a date with a stranger without fear of being raped. As a man, you can dress how you choose and not worry it will be used as a defense if you're raped. As a man, if you have a wife or girlfriend, chances are you'll divide up household chores so that she does most of the labor and in particular the most repetitive and unrewarding jobs. As a man, if you've had a bad day or, in a, or are in a bad mood, people rarely blame it on your gender. As a man, you can be a careless driver and not have people blame it on your gender. 
As a man, you can seek political office without having your gender be part of your platform. As a man, you can ask for the person in charge and will likely be greeted by a member of your gender. As a child, you would have probably been able to find plenty of non-limiting, non-gender role stereotyped media to view. As a man, you can disregard your appearance without worrying about being criticized at work or in social situations. As a man, you're not expected to spend excessive amounts of money on grooming, style and appearance to fit in all the time while making less money. As a man, you're not expected to live and spend your entire life 20 to 40 pounds underweight. As a man, it's unlikely you will be expected to change your name upon marriage or questioned if you don't change your name. As a man, you can be confident that the ordinary language of day-to-day -day life will always include your sex. All men are created equal, mankind, he, etc. As a man, every major religion in the world is led primarily by people of your own sex. Even God in most major religions is usually pictured as male. As a man, you have the privilege of being unaware of your male privilege. In the end, it's men and not women who make the most money. It's men and not women who dominate governments and corporate boards. It's men and not women who dominate virtually all of the most powerful positions in society. And it's women and not men who suffer the most from sexual violence and rape, who are most likely to be poor, and who are, on the whole, given the short end of patriarchy stick. And that's why we're talking about women and justice, because none of those things have any place in the kingdom of God and none of those things have any place here in this church. And so, again, this is not intended to bring shame, but if any of that, by the grace of God, illuminates areas in our lives as men, where, like me at the worship gathering, we are being complicit with our male privilege, and failing, in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, to examine ourselves, perhaps now, in this place, amongst these people, before and in the presence of God, uh, this would be a good time to give it some thought and to open our hearts to the invitation of the Holy Spirit.